The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code GUARDIAN to get 20% off throughout the month of September. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we get down with the kids, at least we try to, as the BBC is warned it risks getting left behind by the way children watch TV. Plus, the mirror gets a facelift as the self-styled intelligent tabloid. And first it was the broadcasters, now it's Indies, who are feeling the influence of Group M's buying power. Plus, we'll preview the upcoming radio festival and Rebecca Nicholson reviews The Wrong Man's and her local fried chicken shop. I think I have that right. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And with me this week, we have former TV exec, murder mystery author and director of broadcasting at City University, Liz Howell. And we have the new chief executive of the Radio Academy. Yes, we've finally got a new way of introducing him. It's Paul Robinson. Welcome both. Thank you very much. Paul, congratulations on your new role. We'll be talking about the radio festival later on, but uh, give us your top line 10 second pitch for your new role at the uh, the Radio Academy? Well, I think the Radio Academy's role really is about uh, having radio act together. It's the one place where actually all the interests that radio has, whether it's commercial, BBC, voluntary sector, they've all got common interests and the Radio Academy can represent those. And you are the head of that one big happy family. I am indeed. And Liz, welcome to Media Talk. Hello. And Liz, I, I knew about your many roles, but I didn't know about the murder mystery books, which, are, which have passed me by. Well, Can I have a free one? They're veiled in mystery. Let's not go there. Well, I'm looking for it. Available on, on Amazon? Absolutely. E-books? Yes, afraid so. Excellent. Link. There will be a link attached to this podcast <gasps> not very far away. Anyway, first up this week, it's the BBC, where the BBC Trust reported on its services for children. There were two, or maybe three, standout conclusions. One is that lots of it is very good. Uh, The second is that the BBC risks falling behind in the way that children watch TV, with more than watching on catch-up and on iPads and the like, which you won't be surprised to hear. And the third, perhaps more surprisingly, is that it's recommended that the BBC puts more kids' shows on after 7pm, when, of course, both CBBC and CBBS have stopped broadcasting. Now, Paul, you know a thing or two about kids' TV. Uh, first up, what, what did you make of this report? Well, I think some of it is very sensible, and I agree with it, but I think some things actually are not quite right. I mean, for example, this issue about these kids who are not watching BBC's two dedicated services, so CBBS and CBBC. That's 2.1 million 2.1 kids. 2.1 million kids. I mean, there are a lot of kids' channels available. You know, the, the Hollywood Studios, Disney, and Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, as well as other providers do have channels so the BBC you know isn't the only player in this game but I think what's important here is to differentiate between what kids do when they're actually in their own time and when they're actually in family time and there's sort of two things one is after about seven o'clock at night children rarely have control of the TV remote so unless they have access to another screen either a TV in their bedroom or an iPad they probably are not going to get control of that TV set so in fact they're going to be watching the shows that the adults in the household are choosing to watch so that's the first reason why you know these shows are not really viewed very much after seven o'clock. The second one is that there are kids as they get older who
who don't really want to be seen to be watching a children's channel. You know, they get to 10, 11, 12, and they think, I want to be older. You know, kids always want to be older. If I'm 10, I want to be 11. If I'm 11, I want to be 12. And it's interesting seeing in the report there was a suggestion that the BBC Trust Research said that if some of the programmes targeting older skewing kids were shown on BBC One and BBC Two, they'd be more likely to watch them. That's exactly that, because they don't want to be seen uh, to be on uh, on watching, watching a kids' channel. So I think what the BBC needs to do is think about how to make these services available, these shows available on other platforms. And really, they've got to make them available online. They've got to make them available on, on, on tablets and so on, because that's really where kids are going to be. I don't think it makes sense to even consider putting kids' programmes back on BBC One and BBC Two. Um, Liz, Paul's referred to it there. This report comes a, a year after they, they ditched all the kids' programmes, such as Blue Peter, from BBC One and BBC Two and put them exclusively on CBBC and CBBS. The Trust said it back that decision, but now it says, well, we should have more kids' shows back on one and two after seven o'clock. It kind of feels a little bit like a U-turn. What did you make of it? I think it's very confusing, and I think what it really points out is the problem about having discrete channels, channels that just look at one thing. And in fact, people aren't watching television that way as much anymore. Uh, 20 years ago, when I started uh, UK Living, which was a channel that was targeted at women, it made perfect sense to have those sorts of programmes in one place on a channel that you could watch. I think that's changed now. The whole concept of a channel is rather peculiar. And what the BBC Trust is edging towards is putting programmes on anywhere, anytime, so that people can access them when they want. The sort of Netflix, if you like, of children's TV. So it's really changing, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't think it matters whether the children's programmes are on after 7pm because the children aren't necessarily going to watch them then. They're going to watch them when they want to watch them on their tablet, on iPlayer or whatever. What I think is important is that they go on making really good children's programmes and where they put them in the schedule I think is a bit of an irrelevance. Yes, Paul, it did feel a bit like an out-of-date argument. On the one hand, the Trust was saying, oh, the BBC's got to catch up with new technology and be aware that people are watching iPads and make their content more interactive. At the same time, they're saying, well, you need to do more to, to bolster your, your linear schedule. But I can't see the BBC One ever putting a kids' show on uh, after 7 o'clock because they're not going not, not to get the ratings. And they've put shows on BBC Three, like uh, a show called Wolfblood, which I, I confess I'm not familiar with. But uh, if I was 12, I might have watched it. I was a big Dungeons & Dragons fan, but it got it got 40,000 viewers. So they, they're probably not going to do that again. Well, exactly, because how are you going to find those things? I mean, Liz is right. I mean, you know, if you put an odd program on a channel, people are unlikely to discover it. I mean, look at the experiment we had with Radio 4, where they put children's programs on Sunday evening. And of course, surprise, surprise, nobody listened to them because well, no one could actually people, find where they were. It just didn't make sense. People did so, listen to them, but, but they but, were people over numbers. 50. Yeah, they were, they were the wrong target. Sorry, the target audience didn't find them. Yeah, quite, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the, the answer has to be, as Liz was saying, putting these programs onto BBC iPlayer, which is a fantastic, fantastic device. And I do agree, BBC Children's does make really good content and should continue to do. The other point in this report, of course, was about the archive, and there was criticism of the BBC. They hadn't actually got as many series out of the archive as they should have done, um, and they have sold some to, to Fun Kids, and, and Mac Deegan uh, from Fun Kids is, is quoted in the article. Um, and there seems to be some issue about price charged, and the problem here, of course, is what is a reasonable price, because there is no market in children's radio content. So uh, there may well be some dispute between the price that Fun Kids is willing to pay and the BBC wants to sell. There clearly needs to be some resolution of this, because if Fun Kids kids want to put more of this content on, a way should be found to give access to them because the public have already paid for them via the licence fee. This is really interesting in all sorts of areas to do with the BBC about how it prices its content and how it sells it. And it's quite a big issue. For example, if you want to buy BBC content for educational purposes, there's quite a high charge and, and a very varied charge. And you can get it different ways from different people. It's not very clear. I think that this whole business of selling stuff on is a bit of a nightmare for the BBC. And perhaps it would be better if they didn't think about it in market terms and actually virtually gave it away in order to get it out there. I think that they've got themselves in a bit of a bind with this one. 
And Paul, just finally, there was a bit of a bleak picture of um, Kids TV in a sense that it showed that budgets for CBBC and CBBS have been cut. The amount of original production has gone down from something like 800 hours to 600 hours. And uh, obviously commercial TV, apart from Channel 5, uh, of the five main channels, have all but given up on Kids TV. And it said, you know, in, in homes with, with greater choice, the BBC channels are now slipping, slipping behind commercial rivals like Disney. So uh, does, it, does it make you fear for, um, you know, sort of homegrown kids industry it's I don't had a tough time for a couple of years it has I mean it has had a tough time and also there has been some help particularly for the animation industry and that's going to start to filter through but commissioning cycles mean it will be a while till that happens I do think there is an issue for British producers to think very carefully about how they continue to sustain British production it is a very important part of the overall kids market I think um, we should also say though that the content that Disney and others are providing is very very good um, and we have a very strong market in that we have the BBC providing material and we have these commercial players providing material. Children in the UK are probably better served with television than almost any other country in the world. So I, I would see it as a blip. You always get sort of um, you know roller coaster on ratings. Disney's currently doing better. You know I'm sure the BBC will come back. Their ratings aren't shabby by any means at all, uh, but the BBC do have to keep focused on this. Liz, last word on this. I think yeah. we also ought to point out that the BBC children's programmes are in no way affected by advertising, and that's a very important thing that we ought to cherish, and that we should never forget that when we're looking across the board at children's programmes that are being provided the BBC does for once have a really genuine and unique position that should be maintained. Staying with TV for a bit longer you may remember that a few months ago we talked about WPP's media buying business Group M. Sir Martin Sorrell's company had a standoff with Channel 4 over a better deal for its advertisers. Then a couple of weeks ago Richard Desmond speaking at the Cambridge RTS convention said he didn't have the uh, 10 stone testicles required to take on Sir Martin Sorrell. Now, John McVeigh, the chief executive of the trade body, Pact has entered the fray. He claimed in an interview on Radio 4 that independent producers, particularly working for Channel 5, were under pressure at the point of commission. That if an indie wanted to get the show made, they'd have to use Group M funding to get it produced. Now, Liz, quite complicated stuff, uh, I think, as you might better tell from my introduction there. But first off, tell us what Group M is and and how it's affecting the way programmes are being made right now. Well, perhaps we could talk about it in in terms of the advertising industry and say that what is happening at the moment is something that would make, you know, Don Draper have an orgasm. It's the most amazing sort of madman on speed type of situation where you have advertising agencies which have clients, great big brands, who pay for adverts which appear on broadcasting and now very involved in content. And over the years, that's something relatively new in British television. Even when we had ITV started, which was completely advertiser-funded, there was a very strong regulatory framework, which meant that the advertisers didn't have anything to do with the content. Now, over the years, that's changed, and we have sponsored programmes, and we have promotions in programmes, and we have all sorts of things that have made it fuzzy at the edges. We're still not like the Americans, where there are completely advertiser-funded programmes, and it still comes under Ofcom, and there is an element of regulation. The problem is that the advertisers now have so much money that they really want to get in there and actually say what should be in the programmes. In some ways, that's not a bad thing. In some ways, that's a good thing because the advertisers have got a very sure knowledge of what the public wants through their amazing funding and their focus groups and their knowledge of the public and so on. But in another way, it's very difficult because they're now taking a stranglehold on the content providers and insisting that they get involved, that the content is what they want that the content suits their clients who are going to be advertising in the break, and it's very limiting for the creative people who are involved. And it also means that Group M, which is the entertainment area of a company called WPP, 
it's going to actually be controlling our content to an amazing extent. And what is also interesting is that people get terribly upset and irritated about Rupert Murdoch and group ownership and media plurality and rant on about that generally. And they don't look behind the scenes to Martin Sorrell and this huge organisation, which has an amazing control of our content. The simple answer, I think, is to go back to the regulators to get Ofcom more involved and to raise the level of awareness with the public, who perhaps if they realised how much the advertisers were involved, would have a view on this. But it's sort of boring. It's sort of something that in British television has always been out there. You know, we've always talked about content. We've never talked about advertisers. So it doesn't get the oxygen that it should get. And this is a debate which should happen and which the public should know more about. Maybe this is a start. But we've got to get over this hurdle of, oh, it's so complicated, and get to talk about this. And Paul, it's, it's a sign of the sort of power of Group M that uh, Pact claims that they spend almost, uh, Group M spends almost one pound in every three pounds spent on UK television commercials. Yes, I mean, they are very big and, and WPP are, you know, the largest single source of, of advertisers and, and the relationships, as Liz was saying. I think what this in context, though, um, in the UK, there are three ways of funding television. There's the licence fee, there's subscription and there's advertising. And it's important to note that advertising is less than one third of the total pie. So two thirds of our television is not affected by this. Oh, and then WPP. Though. Go on, go on. Hang, hang on, though. If you just look at commercial television, then advertising is still a huge amount. Sure, if you take I, the BBC telev- out of that equation. Okay, but I said television. But in, tele- in commercial television, absolutely. Commercial television is less than half, but it's still very significant. But the point I'm making is that in any business, when you get big players consolidating, they have more muscle than smaller players. And, and the issue is particularly here with Channel 5, who is the smallest terrestrial broadcaster, the smallest program budgets, um, and therefore they're more likely to want to access the sort of funding that Liz was talking about, uh, and therefore they're going to be at risk of being controlled by, by Group M. That, that's the issue. At the end of the day, you have a choice. But, of course, if your budgets are tight, you might find that choice is somewhat restricted and you have a heart, arm behind your back. So I think Liz is right that what's important is this has raised the issue. Uh, people weren't aware of it. You know, it's another potential um, gatekeeper, if you like, to content. And there needs to be appropriate scrutiny and appropriate regulation. I'm, I'm not convinced that we should be tightening down too heavily because the risk might be that this money then goes out of programming but there clearly should be a further debate and discussion about it because as soon as you have you know one group of people or one individual controlling too much you know it can be detrimental to program quality. So just to get an idea Liz so what happens is the producer goes to the broadcast with an idea and the broadcaster says we like it but we haven't got enough money to make it why don't you try and find some money from elsewhere and then that producer ends up going to someone for instance it's not only Group M we're talking about no, no, but for instance Group M yeah, and then they insist that they make a, include content perhaps that will uh, their advertisers will appeal to their advertisers that's exactly so right the yes, so the that, that's the, the complication there that the advertisers have too much power over what goes into the programme and but that the programme then becomes as it were a specific tool for that advertising company or group or whatever but it, it is fascinating and we do need to get more to grips with this. I mean, Group M should be one of those names that everybody in media talks about, but it's really quite new. I mean, the other thing, I think you're right, actually, the other thing that's important is I think audiences need to know when an advertiser's influenced a programme. I think that's really critical. You need to know whether they have actually had a say in the editorial. I think separating, you know, when it's pure editorial and when there's money involved and advertisers involved is really important because the public need to know that. Well, that's enough TV for now. Let's talk newspapers. With the Sun's paywall resulting in a massive drop in page views, the Mirror has been doing everything it can to woo readers to their paper and its website. The rebrand includes a new campaign, the intelligent tabloid on TV and billboards. And Saturday's edition included a blank page three with the hashtag MadeYouThink. I wonder what that can be referring to. Uh, Liz and Paul, you've both had a look at the new look Daily Mirror. Um, Paul, what's changed? 
Well, I frankly, the design issues are almost sort of beyond me in a sense that I didn't really notice. I mean, until you sit there and compare, I didn't realise the red had changed back to the red that used to be the old mirror red. And, you know, the fact that yellow and green weren't used as shading very much, I didn't, I didn't spot that at all. So I, I don't think the design stuff is so uh, dramatic uh, that the audience, consumers, purchasers are going to notice it. I mean, I still think what matters with a newspaper is what's in it, the content. And it's very interesting seeing, um, you know, hearing, hearing uh, Lloyd say, we want to inform and analyse not just titillate. Um, I don't That's quite Lloyd Emily. The, Lloyd uh, Emily yes. I, don't, yeah. I don't quite see how that actually ties back to the design changes because to me the design changes are very nice. It's a bit tidier, but so what? What really matters is what the paper stands for. Liz, what about you? Well, I, I, I think it's really missing Tony Parsons personally, but uh, <laughs> you carry on. Everyone's going on about content being king and so on. I would like, first of all, to correct you and say you can never have too much television and move on from it. It's quite interesting <laughs> looking at this business about the mirror, that the visual appearance of it is so important. However, there's an absolutely hilarious uh, debate in the blog section of the Guardian Media under, under Roy Greenslade's blog, which talks about this, which goes on for quite a long time between, I think, two guys talking about all sorts of different fonts and how you can use fonts and whether you can have deep shadow blogs shadow whether you should have this font so what it was so funny yeah. you know it takes me back to the days of is it son sharif the island that you know was the, the great right. spoof so many years ago and turned out to be a font anyway Having said all of that, I do think it's important how a thing looks. I really do believe that. And as a TV person, I would go to the wall on that one. The mirror does look a little bit cleaner and brighter to me. I'm not sure that it would leap off the shelf to me, but it, it is important that these things are taken into consideration and it changes. However, where I think they have got an issue is with this intelligent newspaper thing. I mean, as a TV person, I would say that's a contradiction in terms. Oops, you know, I'm not a press person. But I think that the mirror made this mistake many years ago when it started Mirrorscope and went up market or tried to and left the field wider open to the sun. So I think it's a dangerous move. I don't think people buy the, the red tops in order to feel intelligent. They buy the red tops for a good laugh, a bit of titillation, some fun. And in the meantime, they get quite a lot of information, but that's not their motive. And in one sense, the uh, the, the big blurb beneath the uh, Daily Mirror uh, is uh, free puzzles pull out, which, uh, you know, as a journalist, you're going to slave over your copy. But what people really want is a Sudoku to do over their, uh, over their, uh, their coffee uh, tea time break. You know? and it's a it's, huge puzzle pull out, isn't yeah. it? There's lots of puzzles in there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right, though. I mean, it is always the crossword that people go for in the end. Well, next up, it's sex. Specifically, Sex Box, Channel 4's new show in which couples will be invited to have sex in a box. It's quite a big box, apparently, and luxurious, too. And then they come out and tell Mariella Frostrup all about it. But please, dismiss those thoughts that this is just cheap exploitation TV. Oh, no. After all, we're not going to see them have sex, and we won't even hear them. The box is soundproofed. Which makes me wonder, how do we know they're doing it at all? Anyway, Channel 4 says the idea is that it will reclaim sex from pornography. I'm not entirely sure it will, and I'm not entirely sure what that means. Um, Liz, what did you what did you make of Sex Box? I thought it was a grandiose load of rubbish, actually. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest about it. Sex sells and sex sells on TV. I myself have made some quite entertaining sex-oriented programmes in the past, as, long, as well as some very meaningful stuff, of course. And it can be great fun and it can work, but don't make ridiculous claims for it. This is people talking about having it off. That seems to be all it is to me, and I don't see that it's going to change the world. I do think we need to reclaim life from pornography, but I don't think this is the way of doing it. Paul, Channel 4, uh, you know, they're always good with sort of stunt programming, aren't they? They've crashed a plane in, in recent months. They've uh, We had live drug taking, I think, on TV. We had uh, Gogglebox, which was watching other people watch TV. Or sort of, uh, you know, hit and miss, I think you might, you might uh, kindly yeah. describe it. But uh, 
sex box? Well, I, I think this seems to me to be Channel 4's marketing department hoping we're going to get journalists writing, this is shocking, this is outrageous, you know, uh, pornography on uh, Channel 4, public broadcaster, and, you know, you shouldn't watch it. And, of course, the people then will. I, I can't understand why, you know, having sex in a studio in a sealed box and then talking about it is going to give you more insights and talking about sex, having, you know, had sex at home and then come into the studio and talk about it. So, so I, last know, century having sex at home. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, well, you, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll take it from you, John. But, you know, I mean, if, if Marianne Frostop can truly get some new insights out fantastic but I have to say I'm extremely cynical about it it is really funny making sex programs and and things can go horribly wrong I did do one once where a a woman was supposed to be uh, sitting on a washing machine um, enjoying herself and sadly she fell off because of motion sickness so we had a bit of a health and safety issue in the studio there and the other fun one we did was we tested some vibrators once on uh, cake mix and they did really, really well with the cakes. Oh, thank goodness. We I thought cake that. mix. I thought, who's cake mix? Is she a reality TV show? But a cake mix. But it right. could make a really nice part of the Great British Bake Off, couldn't it? Liz, what TV channel were you working on at this time? Oh, or were you I've, producing? I've worked on them all. Right. Well, is it available on YouTube? We'll, uh... I hope not. Right. We'll wait and see. Uh, coming up, a preview of next month's radio festival. So, Paul, tell us all about the radio. What can we expect at this year's radio festival? Well, the organisers are Chris Burns and uh, Gloria Bramoff. It's entirely their festival, and they're the ones who deserve all the credit for this. Um, I think a really good, thoughtful, editorial festival that actually covers a whole gamut of issues, you know, thinking about not just programme making, but also about the future of the business and how radio continues to be the powerful medium it is. You know, a billion listener hours a month is still a very, very large medium. So, I mean, a couple of key keynotes. I mean, the first one is, is Ashley Tabor, um, the executive president and founder of Global, who doesn't talk very often. And um, Torin Douglas is going to be interviewing Ashley, talking about Global and Global's thoughts about commercial radio. I think that'd be a really compelling session. I mean, Ashley is, you know, the guy behind that group. You know, there's a lot of activity, lots of things to talk about, not least the Competition Commission. You know, I think that's a must attend. And also the very first public address by Helen Bowden, the director of radio and music uh, at the BBC. She um, took over a few months ago. There's been, you know, some controversy, but Helen will be talking for the very first time about her strategy for radio and particularly she's going to be talking about how to keep the radio habit what it is we have to do to make sure that radio continues to be an important medium in people's lives and I think it will be really interesting to see um, what Helen talks about the Peel lecture is um, an unusual um, choice um, it's uh, Charlotte Church who's going to be talking about really essentially um, how sex sells uh, back to Channel 4 again. Um, I think people might be quite surprised that she's doing it, but I, th- I think she's going to have a lot to say, and that's going to be uh, very compelling. That's the sort of opening lecture that's previously been, was it Pete Townsend and then um, Billy Bragg last year? Billy yeah. Bragg last year, who was talking about, you know, really how he got his break and John Peel, how he got how John really got uh, Billy Bragg into, uh, you know, recording deals. We've got um, all of our, our 30 under 30s. The Radio Academy for the last uh, three years has been trying to find really smart young people who are the future of the industry. We had a tremendous... Uh, entry this year, record entry, uh, up about 25% on last year. And what we're doing this year is five of them have been chosen to do sessions on the stage talking to some of the big heavy hitters uh, in the industry. Um, so it's, it's a really um, rounded, uh, really rounded festival with, with a lot of, um, I think, pretty compelling sessions. Liz, what kind of issues do you think the festival should be tackling? Radio is, I think, a very powerful medium and it's very important not to neglect it And in the days of, sort of TV and the internet and so on. 
at least initially people thought, oh, radio is dead, how wrong can you be? However, I think there are two very big issues about radio, which hopefully will come up somewhere in the academy. And one is the, if you like, the abuse of of, of, uh, youth labour, of interns, of students. I teach at City University. I have about 80 students a year, 50 of whom want to be in radio. Many of them are doing what's called work experience. I can actually tell you, and I'm prepared to tell Paul off-air, of one radio station not far from here, which is completely dependent on free labour from young people. It's a business, presumably it's making money, and it's exploiting these people. And no one in the radio industry seems to be prepared to tackle what I think is a really big moral issue about the use of young people and their exploitation in the market in commercial radio. The other issue, I think, which is really big and has been addressed several times, but there's absolutely no harm in mentioning it again, is the male dominance in radio. It's interesting that so many of the people involved in the festival and putting things together are women and clearly understand and know about women's issues, but the fact remains that men dominate on the airwaves and that cannot be right. I'm not sure why it is, but it's definitely a truth. And I'd love to know how Paul's going to address this, if he's going to address it. Well, I think two, sorry, sorry, John, two really, two really good issues. I think on the issue of exploitation, I think there's a line to be drawn there between people who want to get in the door and are willing to give their services and then people who are not paid fairly for the work they're doing. And I think there's a sort of difference there. I remember when I started in radio, I was willing to do anything. You know, I was desperate to get in. I wanted to be on the air and I was willing to give my services entirely free. But then there comes a point where you have a skill and you're able to do something for a company that has value. And at that point, you should be rewarded. And I think that's the balance to to address. And, you know, I think commercial radio does provide opportunities. You know, I I hope people aren't being exploited, but if they are, you know, I would like to hear about it off air afterwards. Well, they definitely are. And the case that I'm referring to is a young woman who's been reading the news on a, a local commercial radio station for 12 months months without getting paid. Okay. That's shocking. Well, well, let's talk about that afterwards because I think that's, that's something we should discuss. On the issue of women, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, there is a job to do to get more women um, into radio, both behind the mic and in front of the mic. It's something everyone is aware of. I think there's um, a lot of effort going into it. I mean, Tony Hall recently uh, you know, made clear he thinks there should be more women on breakfast in BBC local radio. I'm sure that Helen Bowden will talk about that in her address. Um, Sound Women will be at the radio festival and they'll be talking about it. I mean, the hosts of the festival this year are two women, uh, Jane Garvey and Fee Glover, two fantastic broadcasters. And there are a lot of very senior women talking at the festival. More to be done. I mean, even with the 30 under 30, we found that only 40% of the entries were actually women. That's from young people. And we want to do more to encourage that. So very important agenda topic. I think people do understand it. I think there is effort going into it, but absolutely more work to be done. Okay, thanks very much. So the Radio Festival runs from 14th to 16th of October. 14th, 16th of October at the Lowry in Salford Keys. Come, there's still a few tickets left. Okay, finally this week, it's time for the Media Monkey Quiz, which I know Liz is looking forward to, if she's heard of it. Uh, question number one, uh, who was caught on camera having an unseemly scuffle on the Brighton seafront this week? Ian Dale. In, in Dale, one point to, one point to Liz. Uh, this is the blogger and publisher of Damien McBride's book, who... Uh, and also LBC presenter. He is indeed. Thank you very much, Paul. He is indeed a radio man. And as Damien McBride, or Damien McPrickface, if you prefer, was giving a live TV interview as a chap behind him, uh, making a, a, a bit of a noise and what have you. So uh, Ian It'd Dale... Never as a jingle, that, would it? Took things into his own hands. You couldn't, you couldn't sing that as an acapella, yeah. could you? <laughs> Uh, right, uh, two things in your own hand, and, well, who knows what will happen. Question number two. Who is writing a new BBC One drama called River, about Detective John River, a brilliant police officer whose genius and fault line is the fragility of his mind? Well, the it's clue not is, me. She wrote, she wrote The Hour. That's a clue. 
Oh, 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 she just won the Emmy. Indeed. Oh, no. I have to put the clock on you. It's Abby Morgan. Abby Morgan. Abby Morgan. Abby Morgan. Of course, I knew all along. And no question, relation to Piers Morgan. I... Question number three. Why did a BBC weather forecaster give people in Norwich the chills? It's a dynamite quiz this week because of a computer glitch. It forecasts that the weather in Norfolk will be 88 degrees under. Thank you very much. And in that uh, hugely exciting quiz, I think uh, it's Liz 1, Paul nil. Yeah, so, I've no, obviously been watching be the right. wrong TV programmes and wrong radio programmes this Liz, week. Liz, collect your prize at the door. Oh, wow, can't wait. <laughs> well, my thanks to Paul Robinson and Liz Howell. It's time to talk television now with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Let's talk about The Wrong Mans. Ooh, this, this is the uh, James Corden show. James Corden show. It's his first, I think it's the first thing that he's done since Gavin and Stacey, that he's written and starred in since Gavin and Stacey, because he's been busy on Broadway, hasn't he? Doing Winning awards. Winning awards and all that stuff. So this is a quite, uh, quite a strange proposition. It's a noir sitcom or thriller sitcom, a thrill-com. Ooh, right, okay. I've just made that one up. Yep. I hope it works. Um, a thrillody. A thrillody. I like that better. A thrillody. James Corden has written this with Matthew Bainton, who is a horrible histories, and also Gavin Stacey, expat. Can you call people like TV expats? Maybe. Uh, yeah, well, sort yeah you of. just did. Yeah, I'm just playing loose and free with the English language. Um, and they play two friends who come across Matthew Bainton's character is a, a council worker, a downtrodden council worker, his life's falling apart a little bit. He comes across a car crash, answers a mobile phone at the scene, and then finds himself caught up in this gangster conspiracy. And it's very funny. The first episode, I'm trying, I've learnt from this podcast that I should give sitcoms more than one episode because they take time to settle in. So I've given this two episodes, and I'm really pleased that I did because the first one sets the scene. It's a little bit James Corden doing James Corden, and, you know, it doesn't quite hold together. It's funny, but it doesn't quite hold together. And in, by the second one, I was genuinely lolling. There were actual lols happening at my desk <laughs> where I watch most of my time. I want to come and see your desk when you're watching <laughs> Breaking Bad and comedies like this with your headphones on. Just, well, I, my face is probably very expressive, but it, it's very funny. So I would urge people who saw the first episode to this week to also give it a, a second episode to settle in because there are a few moments in the second one in particular that really made me laugh. And let's face it, the BBC could do with a hit sitcom. It's not uh, had a few misses of late. It has had a few misses. I think this, if people are patient, this could be it. And it looks lovely as well. It's a co-production with Hulu. I think they might have had some cash to spend, but it looks really nice. Sort of like The Killing, except with James Corden bumbling around as someone who accidentally found themselves caught up in a crime. It's very good. Okay, so The Wrong Man's uh, hit, says Rebecca Nicholson. But what about The Fried Chicken Shop? The Fried Chicken Shop. This is a cutting-edge special about, I think it was about a year ago, and it was one of those fixed-rig Channel 4 shows, set up some cameras in a chicken shop in Clapham and then see what happens. And I absolutely loved the first one. I thought it was a really wonderful one-off. And just that typical kind of slice of life thing, you get people in the daytime having their chicken for lunch, you get people in the evening... Having their chicken for dinner. Having their chicken for dinner, having their chicken as a hangover cure. It's, uh, you know, all all sorts of chicken. bit like Kevin Spacey and his ribs in House of Cards. (laughs) I haven't seen House of Cards yet. (laughs) Oh. Anyway, Chicken Shop. Chicken Shop. So they brought it back. It was a hit. They brought it back for three more episodes. And I feel like the magic has gone slightly. I know. Which um, I think people, there's a sort of... It's gone cold. The chicken's gone cold. It's gone greasy and cold. Yeah. There's a kind of, I feel like people are more aware of the fact that they're being filmed. So they're acting up for the cameras. And I mean, obviously everyone has to be mic'd up. So you can see the mics on people's 
collars, but for some reason, I've really noticed it this time, and I really feel like people are going in there to do their bit, to do their turn. And it's just, it's lost a little bit It's like Big Brother, Big Chicken. Yeah, it's that kind of period where I think Big Brother, maybe Series 3, they started to be aware of the Big Brother show. This has happened by Episode 2, a disaster. Episode 2, but I think that's the nature of telly. It's the digital era we live in, isn't it? It's the digital era. So... I enjoy it. I still think it's worth watching. There are moments that are really lovely, particularly with the staff, actually. I think they're less self-aware than the people going into the shop, but I do feel like it's it's lost some of its charm. And also this week, it was the return of ITV's Downton Abbey as the Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca. I've no doubt you watched it. I did not watch it. I, f- I feel like this is something of a, a crime, and maybe I shouldn't be admitting it on the podcast airwaves, but... I gave Downton Abbey a series, not just an episode, a series, and I enjoyed the first series, and I thought, I'll come back, and I'll watch the second series. And I think I lasted about an episode and a half of the second series before I thought, this is rubbish. It's just got so... It got ludicrous at that point. And such is the kind of phenomenon of Downton Abbey, I feel like I have picked up everything that has happened in it since, without watching it. There's no need. A sort of cultural osmosis has happened. I know all the stuff that's happened... I've heard that it's not as good as the first series, which I did enjoy. And I just feel like it's an unnecessary addition to my Plunkett Planner, my version of the Plunkett Planner. Well, you know, a big numbers don't necessarily mean big quality, but, you know, 9.5, can 9.5 million viewers, the, the biggest can launch audience wrong? to date, can they be wrong? You know, yeah. Well, my mum watches it, but also thinks it's rubbish, so maybe I'm just not pulling my weight here, because she says it's a lovely way of switching your brain off on a Sunday evening and just looking at the nice costumes. So maybe that's what I should be doing. But it didn't do very well at the Emmys, despite a lot of nominations. That is a good link. Isn't it just? You should I be presenting that's your this. job, really, isn't it? I'm just taking over. Breaking Bad won Best Drama, and there was Best Actress gone for Skylar. For, yeah, and again, which is controversial. So I, I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I wrote a column saying that I felt that Breaking Bad's female characters were slightly underwritten. Although, actually, things have turned around this series, and they, they're becoming much more central to the action, which is interesting. But every now and then, someone will still get in touch with me and really angrily say, you were wrong about that, weren't you? Even now, I mean, it's been weeks. So someone tweeted me this week saying, oh, they obviously didn't read your article as if as if I get to decide you who gets an Emmy. Yes, that's right. You didn't guess that award, right? You didn't, I didn't yeah. get that. Oh, damn. But I actually, I don't think Anna Gunn is a bad actress. I just felt that for the early part of Breaking Bad, at least, Skylar was kind of written really averagely compared to everyone else in the show. Anyway, she won. That was good. What was weird was that mostly the kind of underdogs won. So Brian Cranston didn't win. Who plays Walter White? Who plays Walter White? He was beaten by by Jeff Daniels for the <gasps> newsroom. Oh. I know. I, I don't begrudge lovely seeming Jeff Daniels his award, but I found it really bizarre that he beat Brian Cranston and John Hamm and who, Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey. I think John Hamm was brilliant in this last. He's always brilliant, but I think he was brilliant in this last series of Mad Men, which kind of loved, despite people saying it had gone off the board John Hamm was bit. robbed. John Hamm was robbed. And Rebecca, one final question. This comes from a listener, Forever United, and he says, why no Ray Donovan coverage on the pod when you have Miss Nicholson in? Possibly the best thing on TV and beautifully shot. I'm the best thing on TV. And <laughs> of is course that what he's saying? <laughs> well, maybe so, yes. Um, I've only seen yeah. the first episode of Ray Donovan, and I thought it was fairly functional, anti-hero you know, cable drama. Given that we're so all all invested in Breaking Bad, I'm a bit sort of anti-heroed out. I'm not sure that I want to see more nasty people getting away with nasty things on TV in a slightly kind of over it way. Um, mm. But 
I do keep hearing that it's very good, so maybe that's another one to add to the Plunkett Planner. Maybe we'll return to it in a future podcast. And so I, Ray Donovan, the, the least inspiring programme title in the history of the world, I think. It does sound a bit like a kind of DJ from Cleethorpes, doesn't it? <laughs> it does indeed, or a racehorse. I can say that I'm from near Cleethorpes. <laughs> right, that's it. That's uh, all we have time for. Uh, Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And my thanks to all this week's guests, who were, of course, Rebecca and Paul Robinson and Liz Howell. You can leave your thoughts on this week's podcast on our blog or our Facebook wall, or you can even tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life online. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today with no credit card required. And as a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 20% off in September by using the offer code GUARDIAN. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website.